Welcome to Animation One-to-Ones, brought to you by Squiggly.com. In this episode, we meet Elliot Deer, whose notable mixed-media works include the John Lewis campaign The Bear and the Hare, and the BBC spot The Supporting Act. Having built a superb body of work as a director at Blink Inc., Elliot's latest project is another Christmas-themed animation, All Through the House, an episode of the Netflix series Love, Death and Robots. Squiggly's Laura Beth Cowley caught up with Elliot to learn more. Could you tell me a little bit about how you started in animation? So I've been making films generally since I was about 12. Um, my fr- a friend of mine, um, a childhood friend of mine, had a, a, a video camera. His dad had a camcorder. We used to shoot science fiction films, uh, comedy science fiction films, um, and divvy up the different tasks. So I was in it. So I was one of the stars. I also did wardrobe and uh, special effects, which of course were practical at the time, um, cardboard spaceships and such. Um, and then we did that when you know everyone else was kind of being cool and playing sports and stuff. That's what we did. So we would write and prepare the f- uh, for the filming all year, um, and then when it was half term or Easter or summer holidays, that would be what we did. Um, and we'd just shoot it all in one go and kind of a in a week or something. And um, and get it done, and then we'd, we'd edit it from tape to tape, and all the rest of it. it was it was a lot of fun, but pretty rough around the edges. I mean, I think you know there was some kind of animation in there um, a little bit. That's certainly where I got the bug for general kind of filmmaking and practical things, and making models and painting stuff, and getting into Dad's shed and using his tools and seeing what we could do. Um, also, my parents had saved up for a, a PC um, when I was sort of. 15 I remember everyone else ha- had one um, and I didn't and they got they got me one which was which was really great uh, I was so I remember being so pleased with it I burst into tears um, I mean, it was quite it was quite low spec um, but it would you know it could run it was coral draw at the time I had on it well not even Photoshop and a, and a very early version of flash which is now animate essentially it's part of the Adobe suite but um I think Flash 5, uh, that will give away my age. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, that, that, I did a lot of stuff in that kind of, you know, bearing in mind there was no YouTube, there was no learning online, no tutorials. Um, it's just kind of pressing buttons until it does the thing you want it to do. And you find that it takes you 50 times as long because you don't know the shortcuts and things. But... Again, it was just really fun. It was just moving things around in Flash and recording rubbish audio and making things move to it. And, you know, that was part of it as well. So there was the the physical kind of practical model making side coming from making films with my friends. And then that 2D stuff, you know, scratching the surface of that um, on my uh, on my PC, my beige <laughs> PC, <laughs> the CRT monitor. This is the thing; people kind of don't realise how lucky they are having all the all the equipment, you know, laptops and things. It's just you know, I, I had a, a monitor that was about that deep. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's crazy, and it was beige, and it, it took kind of five seconds to actually make the stroke in Photoshop. You sort of <laughs> you make the line, and then like. Okay, there it is. You do it again. Um, but you know, it was it was a real luxury. I, I still loved it a bit. So, and then um, I did film studies when I got to college, um, 
and uh, what else did I do? Graphics and art and stuff. And I would always try and incorporate filmmaking things into that. Um, and then, you know, eventually, I actually wanted to go into special effects and um, uh, like animatronics. Okay. That's what I would have loved, all that Stan Winston stuff. I was going to be a model maker. That was my plan. Um, and I couldn't find a course that would do it. So I went for illustration because it's just such a broad base. It's such a, a, a really good foundation for, for any visual pursuit, really, I think, you know, in terms of colour and tone and composition, storytelling, um, all that stuff's in there. life drawing. Not that I was any good at it or, or enjoyed it, but... Um, in fact, because we just moved house, I, I was going through boxes and I found um, a box file with because I kept everything, and my grades and stuff, and I dismally failed my life drawing uh, module. It turns out, but it, it's fine. I, you know, I always just own up and say I can't. I can't draw people very well. Now. Yeah. So anyway, it did, I did illustration at university, and um, and. I was always drawn to, to moving image. I always wanted to add music to things. I always wanted to, to be more dimension to it, um, to tell a bit more of a story. And I shouldn't say more of a story, of course, illustration, it's just, a, it's another format. It's, it animation's not better, but it was just because of the way my brain works and, and the types of things I was into. Um, that's that's the kind of thing that I was, I was drawn towards. So um, yeah, and it kind of went from there and, and I, um, I ended up teaching myself After Effects. Again, you know, we're still pre-YouTube. Or, you know, there, there may have been Ebound's world where there's a few memes kind of going up, but there were certainly, there weren't people out there teaching you how to do stuff, how to, you know, use After Effects. Um, and I learned that by myself. Again, very long-winded ways of doing things. Didn't even discover that there was an ease-in and ease-out option uh, you know, in order to smooth things. So if I wanted something to, to kind of come to a soft stop, I was doing it by eye with keyframes. You know, it was basically stop motion, but on the screen, it was, it was really impractical. But I learned loads. Um, and by the time I left university, um, I, was, I was good enough. And, and uh, um, someone came to the, the exhibition, you know, the, the degree show and saw some had bits of animation work that I'd done and I got a job as um, a junior compositor. Arthur Cox, I don't know if you know Arthur Cox? Yeah. Um, they're in Bristol, so you probably do. Yeah, I don't um, think they um, exist anymore, unfortunately. They probably don't. I, I, know, that, um, I know that Sarah works with Ardman now. Um, uh, she's working with a couple of friends of mine at the moment, actually, Parabella, um, who are stop motion directors. I don't know, if you, I'm sure you know those guys, Mikey and Dan. Um, but yes, yeah, she was she was running that studio with um with Sally and uh, that was great. I was an assistant compositor there. Um, I, I mean, the fastest learning I've ever done, certainly technically, is is on jobs. I mean, university is fantastic. Um, you get to build your skill set. You have loads of time, but there's nothing like learning on a job um, because it has to get done. And there's you know. It's, people's reputation work on the line and you really have to get it done. So I learned from uh, some really good senior compositors on that job. Um, and just, I just kind of got into the studio and learned how that all works as well, which was really valuable for me. Um, and then there was another point where someone said, oh, one of the lead animators, the flash animators isn't able to do it anymore. Can you do that? And I was like, yeah, sure. 
<laughs> oh, and I couldn't, but I, I had to learn it really quickly. Um, and I always tell people, students and things, anyone that asks me, like, just, you know, if you can kind of get there, say you can do it and, and you'll just have to learn it really quickly. Really puts the pressure on. Because I think at university, you have luxurious amounts of time. We used to have three weeks to draw a double page spread. And now, you know, now we're, we're turning out films in that time. And, and my friends who are illustrators, you know, that you get a day or two to do that stuff. So, um, yeah, there's nothing like getting in the studio and uh, working for someone else. That'll teach you really, really quick. Proper trial by fire. Absolutely. That's, yeah, I should have just said trial by fire. I wouldn't have had to <laughs> talk so much. But, um, yeah, and then it went from there. I was a compositor. Um working after effects for years and then i was doing um where do you want me to stop with this story by the way because i will just i will just go um I will whenever just... you feel you've run a course or... i was doing um i was doing commercial work i was working in studios uh, as an um, after effects compositor and then by night i was doing um you know and, and on the weekends i was directing music videos and i do them for like a hundred quid and they'd be you know live action with animation or just animated. And it was essentially an excuse to try out new processes and, and you know, oh, I've got a new Wacom tablet, I'll do a music video and get used to it. And, um, you know, any ideas that, that I had, I would try and I would try and get them into, into something. And, you know, a hundred quid's nothing really, um, but it was more about the experience. And that's what I did with my evenings a lot. Um, you know, I didn't get much sleep back then. But what it, what it meant was that by the time I was 25, 24, 25, I was starting to get my work seen by people. Um, directorial stuff, you know, not, not compositing work, but as a director. And, you know, I was showing people my reels or getting it up on the internet. YouTube was now a thing by this point. I was pleased to, I'm pleased to say. Um, and, and it kind of went from there, really. And I ended up... Um, I ended up in London, just, uh, you know, a friend said, there's a, there's a job that he's doing in an ad agency. And then, I, and then someone else saw my show reel and, and there it went and, and Blink spotted it eventually and turned me into the director I am today. But, um, there is a, a side story to that, to getting into directing, which is I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I never really thought I'd be an animation director. I was lucky enough to get onto the set of um, Fantastic Mr. Fox when I was 24. I had a mate whose brother worked, um, he was, he was uh, worked the computers basically and all the software that captured the, the footage. Um, so I was allowed to work as an intern for two weeks and I managed to blag an extra week on the end. Um, and it was amazing. And my idea was that I was going to go in. First, I was going to take my portfolio in and, and show it around. But I was also going to try and get an idea of what it is that I wanted to do. Um, it, do I want to be a model maker? Do I want to be a painter? Am I going to paint the backgrounds? You know, what is it that am I, maybe I should focus on being an animator? What do I want to do? What grabs me? Um, and, uh, you know, they were very welcoming and I got to do work with the set builders and then when someone needed me to put labels on the little the little cans in the supermarket and stuff I'd do that and I'd, I'd meet people there and by the end of it I just wanted to do all of it I wanted to be in control of all of it I thought it was fantastic and I, I you know I still feel very grateful for the experience and all the talented people that I got to work with but I just wanted to oversee all of it because I'm 
I'm a bit of a control freak. I like that. I'm an animation director. You can control everything. It's not even like being a live action director where there's like happy accidents. There's none of those in animation. It's, it's I control it. Um, but that's why I liked, I liked everything. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to direct stuff. I want to be in, uh, responsible for creating worlds like this. Um, so that's that was another part of the of that yeah. decision, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Put me on my my course, my trajectory. That's great. That will um, come on to a question I have a bit later. Okay. Um, but uh, so you've obviously forged quite a reputation for your use of like innovative techniques with different kinds of production and performance. Uh, to tell you know phenomenal stories but can you tell me what what draws you to this mixed media approach on your work and what do you feel it brings to the audience both emotionally and and visually it's funny it's a it's an interesting conversation to have and it's the, it's the kind of thing where I'm wondering around the house I actually ask myself the same question because I think why am I do is it selfish is it just because I want to do it um it's it's a few things, really. I was looking at the, um, some comments on Instagram that somebody left on one of the Love, Death and Robots um, bits that come up. Uh, it was, a, you know, a few still images. And it's the same question that you get a lot of the time, which is, well, why bother? Why bother doing it in stop motion when you can achieve the same quality in CG? So that was one of sort of 500 comments on it. But most of the other comments were, wow, it was stop motion. Mm. And I don't know what value that has exactly, but it seems to strike a chord with people. And, I, and you know, to answer the, the, the question properly, really, why do I like it? It's tangible. And you'll hear a lot of people say this. Ask any anyone that works in stop motion, you'll, get, you'll end up with a, the same answer. So I'm not going to say anything more interesting than that. Um, but it's got story, you know, I like objects with stories and, and, and um, people have had their hands on it. And there's, I don't want to say there's imperfection because some of the, the artists that we work with are, are, make their work perfect, but it, it's, it's got a life beyond the screen. And when, and when it's not on camera anymore, it's still there. I think that that's really nice. There are artifacts of the film. Um, and, and there's imperfection and human error. And again, that's not a diss on anyone that works in stop motion. It's, it's a great thing. It's, it's something that makes it slightly easier for me, certainly, to connect with stuff. I like practical effects. I, not, I like knowing that there were people behind the scenes with their hands on stuff. Um, and then also, there's another, there's another answer, which is, it's what I know. You know, whilst I did do animation on the computer, like I said at the beginning, I was painting things. I was in the shed. I was making things out of cardboard. It would be a complete jump for me to to change. Mm. You know, it, you can there are, there's software. You know, Photoshop. You can do a digital painting with digital brushes that look fantastic. You say to an oil painter, "Why would you bother?" They like the feel of the the medium you know you understand it and and how it moves and how it works and that's part of it but also I like being in that environment and this is a third answer which is that's where I like to be I've done CG jobs I've done full 2D jobs and I'm always impressed with the artists involved and and I, I'm always fascinated with how it works but I love being in a studio mm. my, my dad's a carpenter 
or he was, he's just retired. And um, so I'm used to there being a shed and, and wood and things being made all the time. And I would go to work with him when I was a teenager. And it's an environment I like, like being on a film set, you're kind of on a building site a little bit. And it's, it's not as not as wild as that, but there are wires, there's scaffolding, there's people overhead pulling up chains and things. And I, lo- I really like the energy of that environment. I like working with carpenters. I like working with painters. I like working with people that work with their hands and watching them make things. It's a real treat for me. Um, you know, that's not to say that people that work in CG, it's an incredible craft and it's the same deal. It's that level of details going into it. But I like being in that space. I like that being the way I spend my day. Uh, and and it's, it's a fascinating place to be. And I think that it comes through in the work sometimes. And, and there's definitely a place for stop motion. There are definitely projects where it's not suitable. You know, I, I, a lot of the time I get jobs come in, it might be an advert or a music video, and people say, oh, we want a stop motion film. You think, no, do it on the computer, honestly. Like, you don't need it to be in stop motion. It's not really an appropriate way of telling this story. I think it's got, it's got to be used for the right reasons. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just a lovely way to work. And I, and I, I think it's, it's a treat. I say it's like summer camp for me if I'm on a shoot because I'm learning all the time and it's, a, it's, it's just such a treat to be able to do it. So that would be another answer. Okay. Um, and do, I'll give you one more answer, which is I don't like the idea of old ways being lost. Mm. Tradition, I think keeping tr- tradition alive is good. You know, um, it would be a shame if there was, there was no kind of Ray Harryhausen type stuff going on anymore. If, if that, you know, if that stop motion if industry went away, I think it would be a, it would be a shame. You know, the, it's difficult. It's difficult to kind of think about it. But yeah, I, I don't think just because there's newer ways of doing things, I don't think it means that you can, you need to shove out the old ones. I think it's nice to keep to keep doing things that way. The sense of heritage, isn't it? I think that's probably- so. Yeah, I think that's kind of that's probably a more eloquent way of, of putting it. Yeah, uh, I think so. Which is probably why there's such a breadth of that kind of work in England because we have such a fondness for heritage like we you know we have a very strong connection to our history and yeah you might be right we appreciate it you might be right but it's also um and I I use this as a kind of buzzwordy type of thing if I'm trying to sell in stop motion if I'm trying to trump another studio that are that are pitching a CG job it's um it's intimate you know it's it, you're with people when you're making it and it, it's um the stuff's inherently tiny. And whilst you can create vistas and an incredible scale with stop motion based on the, the way you photograph it, there's an intimacy in that work, I think, in the textures and, and, and the way that things are made. And I, I don't know, I, I think that's a nice quality as well. And that might be, maybe that's why we like it here. I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if that's got any value as a, as a comment or an observation, but... Um, yeah, it's it's just got a, a, a great feel to it. On that, what are there any other kind of considerations you have when you're sort of looking at what, new ways of working on a piece when you're sort of pitching? Well, I mean, you you will have noticed that you've already kind of identified. I'm not a purist, so that you, you'll get that a lot. And that, that that's when you talk about heritage and and um, wanting to 
you know that being the reason for for pursuing stop motion for example you will get people that believe that things will actually only be done in that way and there, there shouldn't be a lot of technology used when, when we were on fantastic mr fox when we were on fantastic mr fox when i was a, a runner and an intern in the studio um that was one of the things I found really interesting. I, there was a guy, um, an animator, Dan Gill, who actually ended up being one of our leads on um, on uh, the Love, Death and Robots project. He's fantastic. He's, he's worked at, um, you know, Leica and, and all over the place. Anomalisa, he was on. But I met him when he, we, were, we were 24. And his job was to, at the time, as an assistant, was to um, come up with practical in-camera ways of showing, you know, the characters being electrocuted when they go over a fence. You know, these are things you could do in After Effects or in CG really easily. But Wes Anderson wanted solutions that happened in camera. Um, you know, he, I guess he wanted that kind of 1970s stop motion feel to it. Hence, hence, you get, um, you know, smoke and clouds and things, explosions done with cotton wool. Fantastic. It's a, it looks great. It looks tangible. It looks like stop motion. Um, what's interesting is that the reason for that to be a thing, you know, like cellophane, like the cling film water and all of these solutions, when they were done first, it would have been because that's the only way you could do it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you'd have given Ray Harryhausen a computer, he probably would have been like amazing, like and done and done some stuff. Although actually, you know, he, he, you know, he did actually love stop motion. That might not be a great example, but a lot of people working in practical effects would have loved the option to make something that looked more realistic, but, you know, practical element effects in camera, that's just the only way that people could do it. Um, so when people do that now, it's, it's because they like the aesthetic. It's because it harks back to a, uh, uh, you know, an old uh, uh, a time gone by, and there's some romance in that. There's, uh, you know, nostalgia in that, and all because it looks charming. You know, that that's that's another part of it. It's it's lovely. It's not flashy. Um, it's quite a humble way to to do things. You know, I think that's the reason for using stop motion a lot of the time. But um, yeah, I so to, to try and come back around to your actual question. I'm not a purist. There are elements of stop motion that I really appreciate, like what we've talked about, the tangibility, the being on set, working with animators who work with their hands. Um, I think that there's a lot of stuff that, that comes through in the footage, in the film, that whether you know about filmmaking or animation or not, you appreciate as a viewer. That this is just, there's just a quality to the footage which is hard to emulate. But I don't feel like it has to be used all the time in my work. I don't, it, people can, should do, can and should do whatever they like. So it's not, I'm not slating any, any processes or any, anyone's methods. But if there's a bit of fire that needs to be done or some mist or some breath because it's cold, I'm more than happy to, to do that in CG. You know, the, the monster in this Love, Death and Robots film has got all this drool that comes out. No way you could, we'd have had to triple the length of the shoot in order to do it with, you know, hot glue and whatever the guys would have used to do it. But the, the team that we had in uh, Norway did a storyline in Oslo, they did an incredible job of making it look real and they put it on twos and stuff where it was necessary. 
Um, and I'm all for that. I think that's fantastic. It's, it's um, an enhancement. Mm. But, you know, at the very base of the footage, is, it is stop motion. So it's still got that heart without trying to sound pretentious. Um, you know, that's the foundation of the footage. But then it's augmented with, with other things that, that just make it more believable, that make for a better viewing experience of the type of work that I make. Again, it's not the best way of doing it, it's our way of doing it. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's just trying to naturally find that balance, go, oh, it's too digital. Mm. Where, where should I, where do I stop and just make it on the computer? Yeah, yeah. Where where did the stop motion bit become pointless? <laughs> where did, where did I start wasting everyone's time? Um, so it's just making sure that I'm I don't end up asking that asking myself that question. I think when it's when you're doing so many projects and it's not like or any project you're building a world, so it's about creating those rules and what rules you're going to apply to different things. Like, are you going to use everything stop motion, or are you going to have elemental things that wouldn't be? Um, tangible in real life but you yeah. want to visually show them are those going to be digital or are they going to also be practical and it's yeah. it's all rules it's setting up rules and as a yeah. director it's you know your choice to make to you know decipher that line i think there are absolutely rules um to the way that i do things i probably i could maybe sit down and write a list of them but i don't actually i can't i can't just reel them off now I, <laughs> I, you know I, um and it changes and it does change, and it depends what it is. You know, this film, All Through the House, for, for Love, Death and Robots, it's, it's based in a house. So it, we don't need any digital set extensions. We don't need to be doing big map painting, digital map paintings for the sky or a CG city on the horizon. Um, but I would, I would probably go there had there have been a, you know, a big establishing shot that, that required there to be a city. So... Um, it's just, I don't know, the right, right tools for the job, I suppose. When you are sort of bringing in all of these various elements into a production, how does that affect your control, like you were saying at the beginning, your control as a director when you don't necessarily have that specific skill set, you like you're aware of it, but how does that alter your control over a production? Um... I just make sure that I learn about it as quickly as possible. Again, you know, going back to what I said right at the beginning of our chat about learning on the job and it may, it's the fastest way to possibly learn. Mm -hmm. um, I'll ask a lot of questions or I will watch a lot of stuff. I'll do a lot of research. And the other, the other thing is to, I wouldn't ever waltz into a CG studio and be like, oh, what are you doing? Yes, I, oh, I understand this. If I don't understand it, I will ask. Yeah. And, and, and try and, you know, have a bit of humility and, and say, can you explain that to me and how does this work? Um, and more often than not, people are perfectly happy to, to kind of give me a bit of a, a brief on, on what's going on. And then it means that I, that I do learn about it. But working in commercials where you do kind of short jobs, again, it's the same thing as I was saying at the beginning. I would take a music video so that I could try out a bit of kit or try out a technique. Same deal. We do a commercial and we go, all right, how about stop motion with CG faces? Because that would be really good. And then you work it out on that short job. And then that you, you, it's another string to your bow. It's another facet to your you know, set of skills. And um, you get control back when you, when you keep learning. I mean, it's obvious, it's an obvious thing yeah. to say. But um, 
I, I feel like I lose control. If I don't have it, I'm just I'm just learning it. But it, it, it does mean um, it does mean that you have to work with a team that are willing to bear with you a little bit. It's yeah. a constant need for reskilling. I think is a, a a thing in film, but specifically animation because there's just so many pipelines. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, it's it is a tricky one with with the CG stuff. I don't. It would get done. That's the thing. If I if I said I'm not going to learn anything about CG, just make it work. It would still get done, but um, probably not as well because I wouldn't have the vocabulary to have that those discussions. Mm. Um, and the guys doing the CG would have a terrible time. It would be such a chore, you know, to have to work with somebody who didn't know what they were talking about, I think. And you see that loads. Mm. You know, people refuse to learn and they just go, oh, you know, you, you get people who, who ask for an animation, you know, in advertising. They'll, they say, we want this advert, but then they don't want to know how animation works. And you go, well, it would really help if you did, because then when you ask these questions, you'll know why the answer is, we need more time or, you know, <laughs> like that can't be done. Um, so it's, I think it's important for that reason. You just don't, you don't want people you, you're working with to be having a, a terrible time. So it's worth trying to learn as much as possible. So I you speak, speak that you've so you've got that vocabulary. I always think it comes down to a, a bit of respect, really. It's absolutely, yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. I think, and you can't not respect the people that work in this industry. I don't think because of the skills. It's unbelievable. And, and, and also... Time. <laughs> Just the time. <laughs> the time, yeah. But, you know, being having the title of director, it, it sort of feel, it puts you at the top, or it feels like it does. I think some people feel like they're at the top of the pile. And um, whilst there is a lot of responsibility, you, you just can't do it on your own. I've tried for years. That's what I did all through my 20s is made stuff on my own. And you just need other people if you want stuff to be that much better, that much bigger. Um, it can't be done on your own. And you've got to recognise that. And then it actually brings you back down to... That's, that's terrible, isn't it? Back down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like psychologically, it puts you on a level with the entire team. But it's a very, you know, cultural thing of like where we sort of rank director. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a hard thing because it's, it's both within industry and outside of industry and sort of breaking that down and getting that understanding. Yeah, it was actually a friend of mine who said years and years ago, we were in our mid-20s that he doesn't like to see himself at the top and actually thinks of himself as part of a, a you know a line and and it it's absolutely the way to think about it and you know directing obviously you're you're part of you're responsible for every part of it and then ultimately people do need to listen to you it's still i don't know i, I still think that it's a division of labor isn't it yeah it is you can't you can't really claim it it's really, it's really tough. You can certainly feel proud, but, and because you've been, in, you're probably one of the people that have been involved in the project for the longest time. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Again, that's why I like being on the set. That's why I like working with animators. why I like being in the studio. Because you go, yep, yeah, I can't do that. That's amazing. Just puts you in your place all the time. 
Yeah, it's like the logic of a producer because a producer is the first person and the last person on a project. Yeah, that's for sure. Person who's like, it's it's their responsibility to make sure everything's going okay, and if it's wrong, it's their fault, and if it's great, it's not their, it's not because of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> historically, the notion. Yeah, that's very true. That's a job I couldn't do. Producer, <laughs> those guys are amazing. Yeah, they're completely. It's weird. You get you say, oh, they've got a completely different way of thinking, but they still manage to have creative input and know what's right and what's good and what's not right. And, and you know, they're at dinner. You having to send emails to people in other countries, and you're like, that's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a lot of respect for the producer. So, uh, going back to your most recent project with Netflix for uh, Love, Death and Robots, uh, which was really beautiful. I'm a huge horror fan, so it was, like, really right up my street. Um, And it it was interesting because I think it's the first use of practical puppets in in that series, in the Ivo series. How were you, like, first approached to work on that project and what was the experience with working with those showrunners and those writers? Um, approach. So it, it, the job came in for Blink Industries, who's, who's uh, you know, Blink's kind of long form and, and uh, yeah, TV and film arm. Um, and it was based on, I think Jennifer, maybe it was Jerome, maybe it was Jerome at Blur had seen the BBC commercial that I did, the supporting act as a two minute Christmas ad for the BBC. And that was where we first tried the CG faces tracked onto stop motion puppets successfully I, I feel I think it was it really did again it was a bit of Hail Mary oh I hope this works and it, but it did it really did and it showed us the potential of that um, that kind of process that technique but they'd seen that at some kind of expo like a showcase or, or something in, in LA um, and it, it traced it back to us and um, we had to pitch on the jobs in the same way that you do for commercials, it wasn't just you, you got the gig. It was, um, I think we were up against quite a few people on it. You were invited uh, to pitch. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So we did, uh, we did quite a lot of work on that, trying to, trying to convince them that we were right for the job. Um, I spoke to Tim Miller and, and uh, Jennifer U. Nelson and talked about the process. Similar to the conversation I've just had with you about um, where you use digital effects um, and where it, remain stop motion. You know, Tim was, you know, he runs a CG studio, uh, amongst other things, and, and it, you know, it's fully embraced technology. Um, and they're at the top of their game in, in the kind of stuff that they do. So he wanted to make sure that this wasn't just going to be a novelty film on, on that anthology. It needed to still be cutting edge and, and fit in with the, um, you know, the rest of the films on there. So he didn't, he didn't want that in-camera practical affected it. I think what he actually said was we don't want it to feel like a student film festival um, and he wasn't being disrespectful but what he meant was he didn't want that um, you know fire being done with with coloured plastic and he, you know he didn't want water being done and saliva being done with you know glue or, or um, cling film and, and things like this and smoke being done with cotton wool he, he wanted it to feel slick but he didn't I want thought- and polished, but he, he did want a stop motion film. Um, so we were quite a good choice, really. And there were probably, uh, you know, amongst the f- only a few people that could could make that hybrid, I think. So, um, 
yeah, that's how that, that ended up coming to be. And, and we, did, um, we did an initial storyboard, uh, which was, I thought, really good. Um, I added loads of ideas to the script. Because again, when you get a script for an advert, usually there's an unspoken invitation to make it better, which is almost always necessary. You need to add some gags. You need to add some dynamism and something to the story. It, needs, it always needs more. So I just naturally was chucking things in, taking out lines of dialogue and, oh, we lose that. Went back with this animatic that we'd done. And firstly, they were alarmed about the quality of it. It was one of the best animatics that I'd had to work from before. But these are people that work in Hollywood. Yeah. And they've got weapons-grade storyboard artists with no disrespect to the guys we were using. But I don't require that. You know, I've gotten things done on a lot less. I've done, gotten things done with no storyboards. But they, you know, these are people that are used to banks of people at desks doing storyboards. And if it's not right, they'll do another frame and it'll look like something from DreamWorks. You know, it'll be amazing. Um, and they're on staff in their studio, so they can just keep going back to that well. We'd have an, anim you know, an animator who was acting as a storyboard artist or, you know, a board artist. We pay them for their week of work. And when the week's finished, they're gone. They're off on another job. The, suddenly, you know, Blur are coming back. Blur being the studio that we were working with. You know, these boards aren't good enough. Or I can't, but we got really told off. I felt like it was like being in the headmaster's office. I haven't felt like that for years. And it really frightened me. And um, you know, that cold sweat where you get told off by someone else's mum? And it did, like that feeling, I was like, oh no, I've done a bad job. They said, you can't mess with the story. You can't just take things out willy-nilly as you want and add things in. You have to stick to the script. You know, Tim's very precious with the script. He spent a long time working on it. Um, the the story is very close to him. And I was like, oh, okay, this is a different industry. I'm in a different world now. I'm, I'm at the big boys table now. Um, and uh, yeah, I got the cold sweat and I, we went back and we fixed it. We worked with another, we found another board artist, not because the first one was no good, but because they weren't available anymore. We'd already spent all the money. So we had to, Alex, the, Hallie, the producers, trying to find money to spend on more storyboards. I'm doing them as well. Ooh, can't really draw. Um, and, and, you know, got it back in good shape again that they were happy with. And, uh, you know, I was perfectly happy with the quality of it. But when I saw some of the storyboards that Blur were doing, I was like, oh, okay, that's why you were shocked. Because they're amazing. They were rendered, you know, that shading and like really good. So I can see why they were, they were worried. And we had, we knew we had it covered and that we'd do a good job. It's just, I think half the job was actually showing them you know, trust us. We did have a couple of um, uh, sticking points, I guess. Y you know, the creature design being one of them. Um, to, you know, I, w I was dealing with Jennifer. She was the supervising director. So she would speak to me directly on Zoom calls like this and, and we'd get to the bottom of things. What needed changing? Tim, being as busy as he was, was further away. You know, there was a, the, the chain of command. He, he would get things when they're ready for, for, to watch them um so he was less in touch with our process i think and there was a point where we had a creature design that we've been working on for weeks and weeks um 
it was signed off and the, the guy's sculpt double who were working in Wales um, started to build it. I think they'd started an armature um, I think, and the clay was kind of on it and stuff. And then I got an email through at night because of course, Blur in, in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, Tim's not happy with the monster. He doesn't feel like it's frightening enough or, or predator, you know, and looks enough like a predator. Ooh, okay. So not only do we have to stop and go back, you know, we've got to find the money for the design again and all the rest of it. And what actually happened was I ended up doing the creature design, which is really fun. Um, but it just took a layer of the process out, you know, it wasn't us getting feedback, me relaying that to a designer. I just wanted to, I put a questionnaire together for, for Tim. What do you like? Do you like the claws of this? You know, loads of reference images and stuff. Do you like the teeth of this? How about this creature? And we kind of eventually, and he, he sent a lot of great references and we eventually got to what he wanted. And I drew it up basically. Um, which was loads of fun. So we really had to step up and be resourceful. And that was, that was a big challenge. There were points on set where we were like, oh, are there any shots that we can cut? Can I get this, these two story beats into one shot rather than two? That's how tight it was. Mm. Trying to consolidate shots and, and lighting setups and things. If you work in stop motion, you'll know what I'm talking about. It takes day, you know, a day to get a shot set up. Yeah. And when you've only got, you've got a hard out of the studio in, you know, in four weeks, there's no dilly dallying or maybe we'll do everything we could do to, to get shots out, to, to consolidate character performances. You know, this is, this is stuff that people don't know when they watch the film. We had a, um, a performer, Cam, who did, you know, all the acting for, for both kit parts so that the animators had a reference. When we got onto set, we're, we're thinking, We've only got four hours to get this shot. Can it be 75 frames instead of 150 frames? So I'd be working with the animator, shooting stuff on a phone, trying to get that performance down. I'd be running around in the car park or like hiding behind a sofa, trying to see if I could get that performance down into a shorter space, which was possible a lot of the time. It was just tough. You'd have to shoot it 50 times, stick it in the edit, time remap it and go, all right, there's your reference, Andy. Andy Biddle is a fantastic stop motion animator. Um, you know, that was that would be how it was working. So we were putting out loads of fires on set. Mm. I think that's one of the nicer things with stop motion is it it really is a uh, a medium that calls for great problem solving. And oh. if you have that kind of mind where you really enjoy problem solving, yeah, um, then stop motion is the medium for you. <laughs> the, brain, the brain work required is incredible. It's a moving puzzle. Mm. Um, and it's, it's quite intoxicating, actually, solving those problems. I think being on set, having a deadline, you know, but you have, a, you know, we had Toby Howell, this incredible director of photography. Um, Max Holstead was doing, you know, motion control and stuff. Dan Gill, Andy Biddle animating, when, when, and, and Alex Halley was the producer. When you got all those heads together and, and you're on the set, and of the model makers, we had Yossel and Sarah, and it's like, guys, can you make this and we'll shoot it from here? It's just, it's, it's, it's really exhilarating. Whilst you could, you could feel that maybe you're stressed, a lot of the time I'd be like, am I stressed or am I really excited? <laughs> I can't work out. Somewhere, I'm going to choose to believe that it's excitement. <laughs> But um, 
Yeah, again, working with the people that you get to work with and, and that kind of collaboration and problem solving, when you nail it, when you solve it and then you get it signed off, you're like, that was probably better than if it had gone smoothly. I'm probably more happy now having had that challenge. It just gets your brain working. Like, it's, it, it's you know, if nothing else, it's, it's good exercise, good brain exercise, really. As you brought up earlier, the puppet faces are... Uh, CG composited. Yes. Um, what does the that use of digital eyes and mouths on the real puppets offer you as a as a director and well, production as a whole? Nuance. Um, I think anyone who works in stop motion will know that puppets have their limits, and I think lots of people are good at embracing that. Um, you know, depending on the design choices that you make, it doesn't matter. You know, a lot of Movements allowed to be bigger, more stylized, or cartoony. Um, it just so happens that aesthetically, what I like is just shy of, of realistic, really. Um, you know, or sort of certainly on the more realistic end of things, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we had good reference footage. I was doing some facial expressions video stuff for the guys. The animators on set, the stop motion animators, had what they needed in terms of body language and performance. And they had the footage with expressions and things to let them know the intention of the shot that they were going to make. But obviously they didn't have any control over the faces except the eyes, which did have, they, they, you know, you could get a pin in them and move them, which helped them with performance. Was that the same on this and the BBC project? B- BBC were completely locked masks. So yeah. the faces were blank and they, the, the eyes couldn't go anywhere. So the, on Love, Death and Robots, the animators had, you know, they could get eye lines and, and work out some timing and it helped them. Um, but yeah, it just meant that afterwards I could, I could absolutely fine tune those facial expressions. It really was fine. Mm. And I get stuff back from the, the guys from Storyline in Oslo and I'd take it into Photoshop. I'd take a screen grab of it, I'd put it in Photoshop and put it in Liquify, you know, the way you can move things around. And I'd just move eyelids up, a nudge and you know, tiny little minuscule things with eyes mostly and eyebrows and then they go and fix that in CG and that's, again, that's the stuff you don't see. You kind of watch it and you go, oh, that makes sense. But it, it really like such a layered process in order to get that believable and not weird, not uncanny. Mm. Yeah, and detail and, and nuance <laughs> is, the, is the short answer. More control and, and detail. Yeah, you do have such a rich, diverse range of talents. You've worked with live action and CG and two D and stop motion, and often combine them all, and also to such a high polish. Is there anything you're particularly excited about trying out next? No, I, that's a negative answer. Isn't <laughs> no, <I'm done. laughs> but, um, no, it's 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 not anymore. I think there was a point where um, you know, going back to what I was saying about being in my twenties, and it's like oh, I can't wait to try this. I'll do it for this music video for no money. I can't wait to try this. I'll do. I'll make this commercial. Um, I think uh, I kind of I feel like I've kind of gotten to the bottom of a lot of the things that I was wondering about. I wonder if that will work. I wonder if CG faces. You know. Um, I imagine that that there will be other things that come up eventually, but um, I'm not going to say, oh, I've completed animation now. I've gotten to the end of it. I've done the final boss. It's not, it's not that. I, I, what's happened now is since I've worked on such a variety of things and, and built 
some knowledge and some skill in, in various areas. What, it's, what I'm able to do now is to respond well to, to quite a few briefs. I won't say every brief, um, but it, we'll use the right tools for the job. And, and you know, it, it'll be, we want that stop motion feel, you know, that tangibility, that nostalgia that you get from the Rankin Bass Christmas specials. Um, but we want it, the faces to be really detailed and we want there to be real. Okay, fine. I'm going to combine this and this. We'll put them together and I can make that work. I think I'm a, from doing all this stuff, it makes me a better responder to, to briefs and things that, that people want rather than before you kind of shoehorn in a process because you want to try it out. I feel like I, as I get older and more experienced, there's less of that now. It's more about what do you need? What does this pro project need? What does this story require um, in order for it to, to be told in the best possible way? So, um, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's how it works now. <laughs> it's the evolution of it. Excellent. Love, Death and Robots Season 2 is available now on Netflix, and to see more of the work of Elliot Deer, be sure to follow him on Instagram at ElliotDeer underscore animation, and on Twitter at Elliot underscore Deer. You can check out his films on Vimeo and see more of Blink Inc.'s spectacular output over at blinkink.co.uk. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and podcast streams for more exclusive animation-themed coverage and visit us at squiggly.com. We're also on Twitter at Squiggly, Instagram at Squiggly Animation, and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. We'll be back soon with more animation one-to-ones. Until then, happy animating.